Let us continue listening for a word from the Lord. Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and suddenly the angels came and waited on him. This is the word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading comes uh, from Genesis 1 um, and Genesis 2 and a little bit of 3 too, guys. But it won't, I'm, I'm going to jump around a little bit. Um, I'm using the inclusive Bible translation, um, which is uh, actually created by uh, Catholic biblical scholars um, and really tries to pay attention to um, how we're using gender so that um, so that we can all see our reflection in the fully. Uh, often we treat uh, language like it's an exact science, but those who've translated anything know it's more of like an art. So please listen for the word of the Lord. Genesis 1, uh, verse 27. Humankind was created in God's reflection. In the divine image, God created them. Female and male, God made them. God blessed them and said, bear fruit, increase your numbers and fill the earth and be responsible for it. Watch over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and all the living things of the earth. God told them, look, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth and every tree whose fruit carries its seed inside itself. They will be your food. And to all the animals of the earth and the birds of the air and the things that crawl on the ground, everything that was living a soul in him. I give all the green plants of food. So it was. God looked at all the creation and proclaimed that this was good. Very good. Evening came and morning followed the sustained. I now jump ahead to chapter two, verse eight. The Lord planted a garden in the east, in Eden, land of pleasure, and placed in it, in the earth, cre creature that had been made. 
Then the Lord caused every kind of tree enticing to look at and good to eat to spring from the soil. In the center of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flows through Eden to water the garden, after which its branches and four tributaries. Jumping down to verse 15. The Lord took the earth creature and settled it in the garden of Eden so that it might cultivate and care for the land. The Lord commanded the earth creature, you may eat as much as you like from any of the tree of the garden, except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You must not eat from that tree. For on that day, eat from that tree. That is the day you will die. Yes, die. Now, uh, chapter three. But the snake was even more naked than most of most cunning of the animals that the Lord had made. The snake asked the woman, did God really tell you not to eat of that, the trees in the garden? And the woman answered the snake, we may eat fruit from all the trees of the garden, but the fruit from the tree of the middle of the garden, God said, don't eat it and don't touch it and you will die. The snake said to the woman, die? You won't die. God knows well that on that day that you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will see like gods, knowing good and evil. The woman knew that the tree was enticing to the eye and now saw the fruit was good to eat. That was desirable for the knowledge it gave. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And she gave also to the man beside her and he ate it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, I now welcome the kids to go hang out with Miss uh, Amy in the back. And we're going to pass the piece later, guys. We're really just changing it up. For the new people, they're like, oh, this is normal. And everybody else is like, this is not normal. <laughs> um, so uh, we're, we're, we're trying to be um, trying new things, especially around how we're inviting kids into conversations about faith and uh, conversations um, around scripture. And so we were intentional today about um, having the kids here while we read scripture. Um, and, um, uh, and so um, that, that was a very intentional. And, and later on, you're gonna be asked um, to share a little bit of like what happened and the kids are going to share what happened today and what are we taking away that'll be towards the benediction and so um, realizing that we are a whole community learning of all ages and 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 ways so we give we give thanks and we're we're trying to figure it out together so be patient with us as we figure this out together um, I now invite Kyle forward to, to share a story. We're going to have storytelling during Lent. <clears throat> um, so quick side note, um, I don't have kids, um, but Cheryl does. And I know that because I was just texted a picture of one of them <laughs> from her phone without her knowing. Um, <laughs> and I thought that was a fun way to break the ice to start this. So I'm going to start with a little bit of a trigger warning. In my uh, storytelling, I'm going to be acknowledging suicide and childhood sexual abuse. If that is a trigger for you, if that's an issue for you, there's no judgment at all. I'm not going in depth with either, but I will be acknowledging them. Please feel free to leave. 
um, and you are okay to leave, that's not an issue. I just make sure that's set out there. Um, so I do not believe in the concept of God having a plan for all of us. And I do not believe that everything happens for a reason. These are concepts as a kid raised Catholic that I was always told. Uh, and then in my adulthood in, in the Christian faith, I've always been told that and I always struggled with that. Uh, when people find out what happened to me as a child, um, for those who do not know, I gave a sermon last May that you're welcome to look into. Um, I am a survivor of childhood sexual assault at the hands of the Catholic Church. Um, I'm not going to get into that here, but it's important context. Uh, when people find that out, they often say, God really protected you because he had a plan for you. I know thousands of young people who had the same experience as me who did not make it out alive. And I am not uniquely strong. And I do not like the concept because it does not make sense to me and it does not fit with the God that I know and the God that I love. All that being said, I'm going to bring us back to the fall of 2008. And to help, I've offered a visual because Kyle is dressed as Kyle in 2008. <laughs> I don't know if anyone noticed that I was dressed a little bit weird, a little bit youthful today. Um, I am literally wearing my favorite outfit from 2008 with the exception of the pants because the waist is different. <laughs> um, other than that, and I will tell you, I was gonna like take the hoodie off because I think the shirt kind of like the cut of it and stuff is really 2008. I'm so much bigger. <laughs> I am like, this is spandex right now. So yeah. Okay. Back to the story. So in the fall of 2008, my longtime boyfriend and I broke up. This was the guy I had dated through most of college, and I am the one that ended it. When I made it clear to him that we were definitively done, uh, he said to me, Kyle, there's something dark about you. There's something that holds you back and that's something that stops you from being a good person. And if you ever want love and happiness, you're going to have to deal with that. There's a chance he was just being mean. But at the time, I knew what he was talking about. He didn't know what I was, he was talking about because I'd only ever told one person what happened to me as a kid. And I knew that there was something holding me back that I had to deal with. But I was a 25-year-old living alone in Portland, Oregon, on the opposite side of the country from my family, from my community, from my friends. I left the church years earlier, and I did not have the tools to deal with that stuff. So I decided to engage in what I called my season of yes, which was I knew I needed two things, counseling and spirituality. And I didn't know how to find either of those, so I decided anything that looked like that that was presented to me indirectly or directly, I would say yes to. And this led to a very bizarre and weird journey through the spectrum of Portland's spiritual world. I'm going to give a tangent just for one second to give you what I thought was the weirdest. I found myself in a warehouse in Northwest Portland where a white man with dreads named Jungle came up to me and said, brother, you seem, you seem like you need some prayers. What's your name? And I was like, it's Kyle. And he goes, cool, cool. Can I pray for you, Kyle? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Please pray for me. I'm saying yes to everything. That sounds great. This is a warehouse of hundreds of people. He puts his hand on me, raises his other hand and goes, brothers, Kyle needs prayer. I invite you to pray with me for Kyle. Everyone stops just like here, turn to me and a bunch of strangers start touching me. Those in the room who know me and have never hugged me, there's a reason. I'm not a tusher. <laughs> this was hell. <laughs> this was terrible. Um, and I could not get out of that room fast enough. So that's just an example. But this also led to someone handing me and telling me to read the book, uh, The Irresistible Revolution by Shane Claiborne. And somebody else saying to me, hey, you seem to be enjoying that book. Is there a church in that book? And I said, hey, yeah, there is. It's called Imago Dei. So I went to Imago Dei. The first time I went to Imago Dei was in January of 2009, and at the end of the service, the person sitting near me said, you seem kind of new. Are you a part of a home community? And I said, what is a home community? And they said, you should join a home community, go home and see which one's closest and go to it. So I went home, and the one closest to me was the Northwest Home Community, so I thought, 
cool, I'll take a bus there and I will go to home community. When I got there in the far reaches of Northwest Portland, you all don't have contacts. It's a weird place to go alone because it's very residential. Um, I was standing outside a darkened house that I didn't know in a neighborhood I didn't really know. And I was like, this is weird and I don't want to go in. So I decided to challenge God because I'm not opposed to doing that. And I said, if I'm supposed to stay here, I need to know somebody inside this room. I said this knowing that I was new to Portland, I'm from the other side of the country, and no one knows me in the city other than my coworkers, and I worked at Reed College, so none of them are Christian. So in Portland, that joke would have landed. Um, <laughs> so um, I go in, and a woman in the kitchen turns and goes, Kyle? It's Sarah Huey. My best friend from high school is Mary Roethlisberger. Her best friend from high school was Mary Roethlisberger's roommate in college. And me and Sarah partied together many times on spring breaks when we would all hang out. I did not know this woman was in Oregon, the West Coast, or Portland, and here I was standing in her house. So I said, touche, I will stay. <laughs> the way these home communities worked was somebody would give a 20 to 30 minute storytelling, not unlike what is happening here. Um, I won't go to 20 to 30 minutes, don't worry. Um, and then uh, we'd all talk and eat food, and it was lovely. You know, at the end of the first one, Someone said, who's going to be the storyteller next week? And a woman named Leisha said, what about the new guy, Kyle? And I was in my season of yes, so I said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. So a week later, I stood in a room of 30 near strangers, and they became the second through 32nd people to find out what happened to me as a kid. I had never shared that with anyone but my sister up until that moment, and now suddenly this room full of strangers knew this thing about me. I was looking down the entire time, avoiding eye contact, shaking. I was probably very awkward in how I presented it because I'm very awkward in how I present most things. But when I looked up, I saw nothing but tears, empathy, and love. I later learned that I both horribly misunderstood the assignment <laughs> and also accidentally really understood the assignment because when people told their stories, they didn't only go that deep. <laughs> um, they didn't only go that vulnerable. But I did because I didn't know any better, and I'm glad I did. So a month later, um, so I did EMDR, uh, which is a counseling thing. If you don't know what EMDR is, I don't really either, even though it helped me. Ask one of the counselors here, and they can tell you what it is. It involves eyes, and yeah. But there was this session where we went really, really deep with my, my, my past, and it was the session that was supposed to basically really address the stuff. It was supposed to be an hour. Three and a half hours later, my counselor had not let, let me go because I was not in a state to be let alone. The only reason she let me go was because she got my sister on the phone, who was in Virginia, and my sister walked with me home. Um, that was a Friday. I stayed in my apartment by myself the entire rest of that weekend until Sunday morning. Um, I was a wreck. I was feeling darker than I had in a long time. I was not in a good place, but I thought, Kyle, you have to go to Mago Day. You have to go to your church. Quick context. This is so much longer than five minutes. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Quick context. Mago Day was at that time one of like the mega emergent churches. It is problematic, and it is a church that is completely inconsistent with my brand at this point. And actually, at that point, too, I just didn't know any better. But we'll talk about that later if you all want to talk about that. Um, the reason I left was because I found out that women weren't allowed to hold leadership positions unless their husband sat alongside them. I'm so glad we don't do that because that would be bizarre. Um, so uh, that was a tangent. So, so I went to a Mago Day that morning. I walked in, and I immediately regretted showing up because I was not in a place to interact with humans. And for the first time, this was a high school. For the first time, I noticed in the corner of the auditorium, there was a sign that said, do you need prayer? With a question mark. 
And I thought, yes, I do need prayer. And this is a great way to not have to interact with people I'm seeing who are inviting me to sit with them. So I walked to the front and I went into the prayer room. And keep in mind, there are three to 5,000 members of Mago Day at this time. I sort of knew 30 of them. I walk in and I immediately started crying and I could not hold myself together. And the two people staffing the prayer room during that service were two members of my home community. So they immediately knew what was going on and they knew how to pray for me and they knew what I needed without me having to voice it because I was not in a position to voice it in that moment. A year and a half later, in October of 2009, I was asked to be the storyteller for the second time. And at that point, I told the story of the previous year and a half and what it took for me to get from the wreck that I was to the stable person I was. And I talked about how I was more stable than I'd ever been in my life and how I was happier than I'd ever been in my entire life. In this room with my, like not just strangers, these were my community, these were my best friends. These were the people I had really decided to live life with at that point. One and a half weeks later, my best friend uh, took his own life. Um, and that literally, the uh, home community was the last week of October, November 5th of 2010 is when my best friend took his own life. I would not be here today if that previous year and a half had not happened. Um, I believe that there was intervention that led to me get the strength to be able to deal with that tragedy and that thing that would not have been something I could have survived with who I was in the fall of 2008. Today, I am a confident, probably too confident, possibly even cocky um, <laughs> individual who is incredibly happy, incredibly passionate about the work I do, has a church community that he loves, has a husband and a family and a house that I just am so thankful for. So I do not believe that God has a plan for all of us. And I do not believe that everything happens for a reason, but I do know that God loves me. Thanks for sharing. Um, let, us, let us pray. Dear God, we give you thanks for the stories you are writing, for the ways you have shown up and are showing up in this room. God, we ask that you give us strength and courage to find the people that we need in our lives, to find that support, to be willing to be vulnerable and to choose you. God, you are our grace. You are our guide. We're listening. Amen. Um, when Bala and I were first uh, searching for a call, um, when we were looking for a call together um, as co-pastors, and the uh, one church uh, was, you know, doing their thing and wanted to hire us. And there's this one part in the, in the process of becoming a pastor that's called a neutral pulpit. It's a strange thing, but basically it's, you don't preach at your church and you don't preach at the new church. You preach at a neutral church and they, they come and watch you um, and, uh, and, and see as part of the interview process, how you lead worship. Um, but I remember this was the first time I've ever done a, a neutral pulpit, but I remember I preached on the persistent widow. And um, I remember the parable tells of the widow um, 
constantly asking the unjust judge for justice. And I have no idea what I said, um, but I do remember uh, one of the, the people on the committee came up to me right afterwards and goes, you know, that parable is really about women being nags. And uh, <laughs> I mean, I was just taken aback by the guy's nerve, right? Uh, pro tip, if you want a female pastor and you want them to lead your congregation, don't give a sexist joke using scripture. Just FYI, it's not going to go well for you. We did not take that job. So, um, but this morning's Old Testament lesson has been used in similar tasteless jokes. The, um, our scripture from Genesis. Um, Eve, Eve, along with every woman, is to blame for the suffering of the world. And now I aspire to hope that people don't necessarily believe that anymore, but those sentiments continue to be used in jokes. Yet jokes still hurt and it ignores what the scripture is really about. Many of us are afraid to talk about these texts because we see them as holding up the patriarchy and the gender binary. This, this scripture has also been distorted um, to, to, de to deny certain sexualities or same-sex partnerships. And when you and I see something being used as a weapon, especially if it's been used as a weapon against us, we often don't want anything to do with it. This scripture comes with too much baggage. I even feel anxious preaching on the text because I want to get it right. Usually scripture feels more like a blooming flower to me, but this feels like a rickety bridge that I just want to get to the other side. Honestly, if it wasn't for the beautiful work of Old Testament scholar Elaine Davis, and especially in her book, Getting Involved with God, Rediscovering the Old Testament, I would have probably avoided this passage altogether. I actually recommended this book about a month ago, and there's a group of Open Door folks reading it. And if you're interested in joining them, uh, let me know. Uh, this Lent, our theme is seeking honest questions for deeper faith. And I think the questions that arise from scripture are key to how we understand ourselves and God's, as God's people and God's creation. It isn't how we necessarily answer the questions that are important, but how we wrestle with truth and how we wrestle um, with, with understanding scripture in, in different stages of our lives. This passage fundamentally uh, questions who we are. Is humanity just beyond hope? Is there any good left in the world? Where is God in all of it? Well, our passage in, um, in creation takes that head on. There are actually two creation stories, which I read uh, part of one, um, and then I read largely of the second one. Some people don't like it when I say that, but it's very hard to read Genesis 1 through 3 and not see that there are two distinct stories there. Um, and there are these different narratives, but I think they both point to who God is. In, in that first creation story, we all might remember that God made the world and called it good, very good. Furthermore, we ourselves as humanity are created in God's own image, all genders, all people. There's, this, there's an overwhelming 
amount of books that are written on, um, on what theologians call Imago Dei, which in Latin means the image of God, which comes from this passage that we are image bearers of God, that we have this image. Um, you'll find a lot more books on that than on the Holy Spirit, but that's a tangent. Um, but uh, there, what, what, what is Imago Dei? What is it about us that we are carrying the image of God? Is it that we look like God? Does God look like us? Does God have two legs? Is it about our ability to think and reason? Is it our ability to love and show compassion? Or is it our ability to create and imagine? And is my Imago Dei different from your Imago Dei, the way you're carrying God's, uh, God's image? And there's just a lot of questions in that. A lot of questions that call us to a deeper kind of faith. But the truth that stays consistent in all of those questions is that we were made in God's image. God made us and called us good. So humanity is good, right? <laughs> well, things get a little bit more complicated when we look at the second creation story. Verse uh, 2, 7, then the Lord God formed people from the dust of the ground and breathed into their nostrils the breath of life. So in verse 1, uh, in chapter 1, humanity is in God's own image. And then in chapter 2, we're told humanity is made from the dirt. The Hebrew word for dirt actually is Adomai. So it's a play on words that the first person was Adam. What does that even mean to be made of dirt? Well, in my understanding, it means more uh, that we are small and fleeting more than being dirty and not even meaning uh, made out of and not not necessarily in the negative sense, but like a fragile piece of pottery. Well, being made of dust doesn't necessarily have to be bad. Being of dust does make us open to sin and brokenness. And being of dust also means we die as, as we proclaimed in Ash Wednesday, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. So we are this unique mixture of divine and dust. We are both. We are not completely good, nor are we completely evil. We're this beautiful mixture. So often our culture wants us to pick sides, make it an either or situation. You are either good or you're either evil. And certain people are good and certain people are evil. But scripture shows us it's not an either or situation. It's a both and. Each of us, every one of us has something divine in us, but also something dusty and fragile. That beautiful line from Psalm 139, we are knit together by God, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The original Hebrew for the word uh, fearfully means with great reverence. Just think about that, my friends. You were designed and made, each one of you, to be a complex mixture of holy yet fragile. And it's just not us, but all of God's children were made with such a delicate hand. Think about the beauty and the complexity 
of humanity, the many cultures of the world that God has created and cares for. When we comprehend God's work in creation, it, in just us as humanity, besides our wonderful world, it is awe-inspiring and humbling. But this isn't just something for us to sit back and relax and think it's nice. This is a reality that changes things. As people of faith, we have to see and accept ourselves as both divine and dust. We can't become too arrogant. Kyle's working on it. And <laughs> um, thinking that we are, we have arrived. And we also have to remember we're dust. And that um, that that someday that this this all will end. And when we think we are below God's love and redemption, we remember there is something divine within us. You each have something godly within you. We were made, we were made in God's image. All genders, all races, we were made in God's image. While these creation stories teach us who we are, our passage this morning of the forbidden fruit reminds us of the choices we are given in our life. The original humans took a bit of the fruit from the tree of good and evil. They were given a choice. And their choice led away from God and opened them to the realization of their own vulnerability. And in this sense, each of us has real power and dominion in where we were planted. What we say, what we do has real consequences to those around us. As God gave us two responsibilities over the garden, we have responsibilities in our own locations. We are here but a small and fleeting moment, but we are given choices to follow God or turn away. I think this understanding of life as being choices where we're either going towards God or away from God, rather than thinking of good and evil, is more helpful. We are these fragile human beings who are given a choice in life, and we make choices towards God, or we make choices to turn away. We are all put in the garden to create, to wonder, to love, to show compassion, but we do it in a limited time frame. Are we going to make choices to follow God? Well, our text in Genesis teaches us that we were given this precious life, our New Testament scripture reminds us Jesus was also given choices. Often we read the New Testament text and believe it is Jesus's ability to resist temptation and avoid all sin. Yet I believe it is more an accurate description to say the scripture is about what Jesus chooses, not what Jesus denies. Jesus did not choose to avoid the feelings of hunger and thirst and to seek wealth and to power but Jesus, in fact, chose us. Jesus chose to humble himself so we could know the depth and width of God's love. As we are called to make choices that point us towards God, Jesus always, without exception, makes choices to come in our direction. 
I don't know if you've seen the film uh, from 2016. It's called Arrival. It was a big blockbuster and it is very bizarre and not what you think. Um, and I'm going to totally ruin it for you now, but I don't think you're missing much. But I do think there's an important part about it. It's about an alien invasion, actually. Um, and But uh, through it, this, this main character realizes that she can see the future. She sees that she, this, this, uh, this man that she's just flirting with now, she will eventually fall in love with and they will have a child. And she sees eventually her husband will leave her and that child will die of illness as a teenager. And the question becomes, will she still move forward? Knowing what she knows, will she marry that man? Will she still have that beautiful daughter? Would you? That's a hard question to answer. If we knew all the hardships that would come with our life, would we still have the courage to step forward. I'm thankful God doesn't show us the future. But the thing is, God does know the future. God created us with free will, and God knew that we would choose again and again to point our directions in a, our lives in a different way. Yet God still created us. Our creator knew that they would have to spend send their only begotten son, and that son would suffer and die, yet God still created us. And today, as God is disappointed, as seeing God's children suffer of war, curable diseases, and hunger, and we often choose our own selfishness, yet God still created us. In the face of real suffering, real pain, God still chooses us, still chooses love, still chooses compassion, still chooses creation. These scripture lessons aren't so much about sacrifice or temptation, but about choices. Are we going to focus on making choices that point us towards God? Are we going to do the many cool activities that we're, gonna, we're doing as a church to read scripture together, to gather in morning prayer, to, to seek Christian friendship, or to, to seek God in our own individual lives and in our workplace and in, in how we parent? What will draw you closer to God? For we are only given this moment. We are yet these fragile vessels. But in this very moment, we are also have the capacity to touch the holy. Are we going to enter into that adventure with excitement and doing God's work? Or are we going to focus our attention on ourselves and our own security? Siblings, you are each fearfully and wonderfully made. And God is with you writing your beautiful story alongside you. I hope you enter that story with courage and hope. You and I could go either way. God has given us that choice. But let me tell you, God's world can only go one way. God's story and the destiny of the world is bent towards justice, righteousness, and God's redemption. Beloved, God will always choose you. Let that be enough 
to make the hard choices for today. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I now invite you to greet one another in the face of God. The peace be with you.